I'm Umbreen Khan, and you're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. If you were just joining, earlier in the program, I was talking with Timothy Keller. He's a retired pastor from New York City, Redeemer Presbyterian Church. In his new book on forgiveness, Keller explores how difficult and painful forgiveness can be to grant, but he insists that if it is to bring peace to the wronged, it must be bestowed with the whole heart. If it is to bring growth to the wrongdoer, it must be given freely. After my conversation with Keller, I was remembering another conversation, one in which forgiveness was not given freely, but coerced. It was a story shared by Alyssa, a Mormon woman, about her experience surviving abuse. Because of the sensitive nature of her story, we are only using her first name. Before we begin, a warning. This story may be difficult for some listeners. When Alyssa was 13, she says she was sexually assaulted by a schoolmate at scout camp. He was 17, almost 18, and yes, I was 13. I uh, reported it to the Children's Justice Center and to a police officer, and uh, they didn't prosecute further than he couldn't return to the area that it happened. And the next year, he still came back. I didn't report it until a couple months after the incident because he had told me that if I were to tell anybody, I would be in trouble too. And that indeed did happen. Alyssa got in trouble with her church when she finally told her local bishop, essentially like a pastor, but a lay leader with no formal training. Alyssa says she was blamed for her assault and punished. My own bishop made me not participate in the church activities uh, for close to a year after I had confessed to him about a boy in my school who had taken advantage of me. Why would a 13-year-old be blamed for a sexual assault? Tara Tully says it comes down to Mormon culture. Tully is a Utah-based licensed clinical social worker who works with many women who have experienced sexual abuse and are either currently or formerly part of the Mormon church. We know reported in Utah that one in three women will report being sexually assaulted. So I would say it's a huge issue because that's reported. And we know that sexual assault is underreported. Tully says Mormon doctrine stresses the importance of modesty, such as not wearing, quote, revealing or sexually suggestive clothing as to not draw, quote, undue attention. And it emphasizes sexual purity. I mean, I grew up LDS, and I remember from a very early age, we're taught that immorality or sexual immorality is a sin that's next to murder. So there's kind of this cultural attitude that it's one of the worst things that you can do next to murder. The official LDS church policy states that, quote, victims of sexual abuse are not guilty of sin and do not need to repent. But Telly says this idea that being sexually assaulted meant a loss of one's purity, that continues to permeate Mormon culture, even if it's not doctrine. I remember in some of my young women's classes talking about sexual assault and talking about how it's better to die than to lose your virtue. And basically the attitude that if you're raped or if you're assaulted and you don't fight back or fight to the death, then basically you're at fault. 
and that's kind of the attitude. I think the church has made more efforts to be more informed, so I think it's slowly changing, but I think some of that still persists in the general culture. Two years after the assault, Alyssa says her abuser was preparing to go on a mission trip. Tully says part of that preparation is making restitution for one's sins, and without it, you can't go on a mission. Serving a mission, if you're a young man, is a really big deal in the LDS church. There's a lot of pressure, and so especially in Utah, a young man that doesn't serve a mission, there's a lot of public shaming that comes from that. So to go on his mission trip, he needed her forgiveness. Alyssa says she and her parents were called into the office of her local leader, the stake president, where she says she was pressured into forgiving her abuser. I was only 15 at the time I got called into the office and was asked if I could forgive my perpetrator and that if it was God's will and if it was within me to forgive him, to be able to have him go on that mission. And I wasn't ready to forgive him because he hadn't confessed to me. And his parents were calling my parents trying to get me to confess that I had lied. Alyssa was conflicted. She says her faith always emphasized the virtue of forgiveness. Forgiveness is to be Christ-like, and if you can't forgive, then you aren't worthy to be in part of the practices within the church. And that involves going to the temple and everything like that. So that's taught within the church that forgiveness is the most important thing you can do, even in these horrible situations. So the pressure to forgive was twofold, social worker Telly explains. First, Mormon culture stresses avoiding negativity. They think culturally, yeah, that there's an implicit attitude that forgiveness means you let go of all anger, you let go of anything that's a negative feeling and emotion, even though I don't think doctrinally that's, you know, at the core what the LDS Church believes. And Mormon culture stigmatizes those who don't serve on a mission trip, which would be impossible without Alyssa's pardon. Saying, you know, if you don't say yes, then you're going to be responsible for shaming him for not going. So Alyssa relented. I told my stake president that yes, I would forgive him if it was really the true will of his God. And that's the day I lost my faith in the church. Because I couldn't see how a kind and loving God would allow for my my abuser to go and serve where he could possibly do that again. Alyssa explains how that experience continues to traumatize her. It's, it's still damaging me today, and it's been over 10 years. So it, it just invalidated me in the, in the sense that I wasn't worthy to be believed, that just the mere existence that I was a kind and maybe beautiful woman that... That was my punishment that I was just going to be abused because I, I'm too much of a temptation. And that was kind of reinforced to me through my leaders throughout my upbringing. And I just couldn't feel peace anymore because of certain beliefs that I had developed within myself. So even in attempts of a suicide, I... I couldn't follow through with it because I felt that I was going, that I wouldn't be received into heaven because of stuff that happened to me. Because it was, that I believed that it was my fault just for being born. (laughs) 
Tali says she's seen this with other victims with whom she's worked. Well, it basically invalidates the damage of the abuse. And so if the idea of forgiveness is you don't acknowledge any feelings of anger or hurt or violation, and if you are the victim and see that the perpetrator, if they confess, basically they don't have to take any other accountability beyond that, and they can go on and still continue to participate in priesthood leadership and go on a mission that's pretty invalidating and devastating to a victim who hasn't had treatment, hasn't had any restitution, and hasn't been allowed to work through those feelings of anger and hurt. Tully also says these are not isolated incidents, but the hashtag MeToo movement has been critical to countering these pervasive cultural beliefs. The MeToo movement, though, I think has allowed women to speak, and not just women, but men too. And it's not just the male leaders that perpetuate the problem, it's the female leadership a lot of times because they buy into those ideas, they perpetuate those shaming ideas without, and I don't know that it's necessarily conscious or ill-intended, it's just part of it is there's this overwhelming attitude in the culture that if we're the chosen people and we're righteous that we don't have these problems or we want to ignore these problems or we want to explain them away. And so they're minimized. Um, There's a lot of victim blaming. And so it's allowed to persist. But it's just as much, I think, I mean, it's definitely a problem with patriarchy and rape culture, but it's also internalized shame culturally that gets passed down to women and um, women within the leadership also reinforce it. Part of the problem, Tully says, is most bishops are lay individuals with no clergy training. Even well-meaning ones might not know the right things to say when an abuse report comes to them. But when I'm able to educate the bishops, a lot of times I can help them you know, understand the issue more from a professional perspective, what's going on, and help them to be more supportive and less shaming and using less shaming language. So I've had some positive experiences with individual bishops, but the church's largely led by a, a volunteer clergy. So it's it really varies depending on the experience of that bishop of the stake president, which is kind of the upper leadership of an area. And so it can really vary from very supportive and knowledgeable to damaging and shaming in thinking that they're doing the best thing and not really realizing that they're causing damage based on their own misperceptions and most and misinformation. Still, Tully says she's seen progress. In March 2018, the church updated its guidelines for preventing and reporting abuse, stating church leaders should never disregard a report of abuse or counsel a member not to report criminal activity to law enforcement. There have been some recent public statements that the church is, I think, trying to address the issue. I don't know that it goes deep enough, but within our church culture, it takes a long time for attitudes and culture to change. So I'm encouraged by some of the recent statements the church has come out with. I think there's a long ways to go, but a lot of that's got to come with empowering women and helping women to have a voice and to not allow themselves to be shamed and to recognize that they can have a voice and they're worthy of having a voice. And Tully says she wants Mormons to know that it's important to seek help, not just from religious leaders, but also from mental health professionals. 
a lot of people have a hard time like they feel like the person they go to for any emotional issue is the bishop first and it stops there and if that's insufficient then it gets internalized to shame and becomes self-destructive behavior so just recognizing that it's okay to go outside of the church to the right professional for help as for Alyssa, she says she is working on healing and knows now the abuse was not her fault. It's just a matter of building new truths and beliefs to understand who I am because I I feel like I'm all over the place and I don't even know who the true me is sometimes. And in a series of emails, she confronted the faith leader who originally asked her to forgive her abuser. It kind of gave me some courage to start reaching out to those who had caused me harm, whether it was through ignorance or just acts of evil. And I think that I felt the safest to reach out to the stake president first because I knew that maybe deep down he didn't have ill intentions. And so I wrote him an email first to make him aware of the damage that that interview had caused. And I told him that even though I forgave that young man at that time, I wish I would have been strong enough to have said no. He uh, thanked me for educating him and that he has since uh, sought other methods so that he could be more helpful in these kinds of situations and that he was sorry. Alyssa says the stake president offered to pay for therapy, which she declined. She says he also told her the way to heal is through Christ. But she says she can't go back to her faith, at least not yet. A loving God would be patient and willing and allow anybody to find their own path to healing and back to him if that was the, the choice. This segment first broadcast in 2018. Producers included Stephanie Lachi, Melissa Fato, and Joanna Broder. Since the original broadcast, Tara Tully is no longer practicing, and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has since created an extensive directory of resources and tools for members that can be found at abuse.churchofjesuschrist.org. If you or anyone you know is in search of help, the National Domestic Violence Hotline is one 800 799-7233. That's 1-800-799-7233. That's all for this week's show. If you're interested in learning more about our guests, please head over to this week's episode show page at interfaithradio.org. While you're there, you can learn about us, read the show notes, sign up for the newsletter, and explore the series and archives. You can also take this program on the go. Just search Interfaith Voices wherever you listen to your podcast. And while you're there, help us out. Leave a rating and a review. It really does help others find us. This week's episode was produced by Kevin McCarthy with support from Kimberly Winston. Thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, for her vision and MC Yugi for our theme music and additional sounds by Blue Dot Sessions and Audio Binger. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. Wherever you are, I hope you are well. I hope you are safe. And I hope you stay connected. I'll see you next week.